Thank you for joining me on this week's Tell Us How to Make a Better podcast. You have to have noticed how many major disasters happen around the country, from flooding to fires, tornadoes, and hurricanes. And we see again and again people losing everything in these disasters. So what are we doing about it? Are we making people more aware of the risks where they live? Are we demanding more from builders? Are we waiting for local officials to make stricter building codes? Well, my guest today is Rob Moore. Rob is a member of the Climate Adaptation Team at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Rob and the NRDC are addressing the issues I've just brought up. And today, we'll be talking about things that every homeowner should be thinking about so you don't get wiped out by the next disaster. I'm George Siegel, and this is the Tell Us How to Make It Better podcast. Your home is probably your biggest investment. And every week we show you warning signs and solutions to help you protect it. Tell Us How to Make It Better is partnering with The Readiness Lab, the home for podcasts, webinars, and training in the field of emergency and disaster services. Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, George. Now, I've been reading a lot of the stuff you sent me, and it, it kind of overwhelmed me in going, wow. We've got a lot of stuff we really have to worry about. And I'm aware of that because of all the podcasts and the films that I've made, that there are some problems. So tell me what you're working on at the NRDC right now to move the world and that you're feeling some uh, some progress in to make things better. Yeah, so I'm on a team uh, at NRDC that's primarily focused on issues around climate adaptation. How are we going to change our policies, practices, how we make decisions in the face of climate change. And my, my part of the team focuses mostly on issues around how flooding is becoming more severe and more frequent because of climate change, as well as sea level rise issues that are becoming more and more of a concern uh, with each passing year. So um, with, those, with those issues kind of as the, the challenges before us, we've been pursuing a suite of things, both at the federal and primarily the state level, um, to help communities, individuals, governments figure out how are we going to protect ourselves from the impacts of climate change that can no longer be avoided. Now, the thing, one of the things that's frustrating for me is when things become political, and, and no matter what side of the aisle you're on, and I like to look at it from the standpoint of, hey, there's major disasters. People are getting wiped out. There's flooding. There's all kinds of problems. Let's focus on the problems. What can we do to fix them? So what do you run into in trying to do that? Because I know it's very difficult to get people to, to make change, whether it's a politician, whether it's a local official. How do you guys navigate those roadways to, to try to get stuff done? Yeah, there's, there's no one easy answer to that. I think um, unlike my colleagues at NRDC that work on the root causes of climate change, um, there's less of a partisan political dynamic when you're talking about the impacts of climate change. You know, when you're when you're looking at policy responses to deal with the root causes, let's you know, CO2 emissions. You know, it's it's very much a political litmus test between Republicans and Democrats. When you're dealing with the impacts of climate change. You don't have anybody that says, I don't believe this flood happened. You can't stand in water up to your knees and actually deny that because you're obviously crazy if you're doing something like that. So there's there's a lot more consensus on what the challenges are and even what the solutions are. But that doesn't make it 
necessarily any easier. So while we might have bipartisan agreement uh, on what the challenges and solutions may be, we often have bipartisan opposition uh, to those solutions. And a lot of it comes down to, um, well, frankly, a lot of it just comes down to money. You know, there's, there are certain industries that are threatened uh, or feel like their profits are gonna be injured if we did the right thing and built better, uh, built to higher standards, told people more information about their risks. So those, those are the types of, of things that we mostly need to overcome in, in the advocacy that we're pursuing and the solutions that we're designing. And one of the things you directed me to that has now just uh, frustrated the heck out of me was that website that says, how does your state stack up on flood disclosure? Well, I live in Florida and we were in bright red on that F map. For Florida, you get a big <laughs> F down there. We do. For certain things we do. Although I love living here, there's certain things that frustrate me. And, and that certainly is one of them, because what, what I was shocked to find out is that realtors have gotten it so you can fill out a disclosure form to say your house has had flooding, but they don't have to show it to the buyer. That seems yeah. kind of crazy. There's a lot of states that there is no requirement that a, a landlord or a home seller have to actually disclose information like, has the home flooded for? Has the home flooded before? What were the damages from those floods? Um, is there a legal requirement that you're aware of to purchase flood insurance? You know, the majority of states um, don't require that type of basic information to be given to a renter or a home buyer. And that's something that we've been working on fixing. And in fact, this year, uh, NRDC has been working with a number of organizations in New York State, in New Jersey, as well as North Carolina, and uh, we've made some great progress towards changing those states' real estate disclosure policies. Uh, New York passed legislation this year um, that is just awaiting the governor's signature that give that will finally give home buyers in New York State. Uh, access to that information and require disclosure of, of uh, flood damages and flood risks. New Jersey also passed legislation this year, giving both renters and home buyers that right. And North Carolina is on the verge of adopting a mandatory disclosure form that will add a series of questions, uh, ensuring that home buyers are, in full, are fully informed about past flood damages and flood risks known to the seller. I love that. I think that is is so important, but there's a way that we can get a jump on that because one of the things that I always talk about and advocate is don't wait for somebody to actually do that. Start demanding those things yourself. And and that that's a message that I haven't been screaming, but now in my next film and in anything that I do, I'm going to tell homeowners to demand that information when they're buying a house from someone and not to buy the house if they won't give it to you. I mean, I, I think a that's a must have piece of information. It, it absolutely is, especially in a state like Florida that has seen more than its fair share of flood disasters in the last few years. Um, and I think that's something that that the states where we have uh, made some progress are acutely aware of. You know, each of the three states I mentioned have a history of recent flooding events and hurricanes. 
another state I didn't mention, South Carolina has also made some big improvements in the information that are that's disclosed to home buyers there, uh, thanks to the work of the Southern Environmental Law Center, who we've also been working with in North Carolina. So, yeah, I think even if even if these questions are not on the disclosure form, you're absolutely right, George. Ask, ask. Has this home flooded? What were the damages? Do you have flood insurance? Are you required to have flood insurance? Um, because uh, the buyer or the seller may not want to tell you that information, and that tells you something. That's still information that you can act on. Um, but one thing they cannot do is they can't they can't deceive you. They can't give you. They can't knowingly give you false information. So they can either choose not to answer uh, or they can give you truthful information. Well, it's the choosing not to answer that that uh, gets me upset because um, you're choosing not to give that information. And I think a lot of people are afraid, well, if I ask too many questions, they won't sell to me. Other people want this house. And, and my answer is they're doing you a favor if you walk away from something like that. They've just done you a huge favor because if you buy a house that has a history of flooding and they haven't told you, that's now your problem. Tag, you're it. And the next disaster could completely wipe you out. Very true. The, this issue of disclosure, we think, is it's just one of a fundamental fairness. When two parties are entering into a financial transaction, perhaps the biggest transaction of their life uh, when you're talking about buying a home, it's just unfair that one side knows something that the other side cannot know. And that's only compounded by the fact that um, the only other the, the other places that a home buyer or a renter could could reasonably go and find out something about flood risk are also not completely reliable sources of information. At the top of that list, I would put FEMA's own flood maps. You know, the, these are flood maps that are produced by the Federal uh, Emergency Management Agency. And they are produced for, for purposes of both communicating flood risk to the public, but also informing local communities, engineers, uh, architects, urban planners, banks about where is it safe to build and where is it uh, more risky to build. The problem with the flood maps that FEMA produces is they are often out of date um, by 10 or 20 years or more. And even if you have a brand new shiny flood map that was just produced that day, um, it still doesn't tell you a whole lot about what future flood risk is because FEMA does not incorporate information like sea level rise projections into its flood maps. Its flood maps are also based exclusively on historical data. So what you're looking at when you see a FEMA flood map is what the flood risk used to be. It's not really, it's not designed to tell you what your flood risk is going to be. And that's, that's the real piece of information you need because you're not living in a movie where time goes backwards. We're not in a Christopher Nolan's movie Inception. Hmm. Is that too vague of a reference for your audience, George? No, I think it's I really I think like it's great. that movie. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think it's like the expression built to code. It's like, okay, so you're <laughs> yeah. taking the minimum standard the for minimum. my safety 
And you're saying invest a million dollars or two million or whatever you're spending, a right. hundred thousand, five hundred thousand, because we're built to code. How about we're anticipating problems thinking forward? And that's really what needs to be done with flooding. That FEMA map can be extremely misleading. Yeah. So just for example, when when Hurricane Sandy hit New York City in 2012, the flood map that was in effect for New York City had been produced in 1983. So it shouldn't be a big surprise that the flooding was actually more extensive than FEMA's flood map uh, led people to be prepared for. Um, FEMA is uh, recognizes that this is a problem, but has yet to put forward a new mapping methodology or even really experiment with ways of incorporating future conditions into its flood maps, but it's definitely needed. The same can also be said of FEMA's um, what, what's called their minimum codes and standards. So in order for a community to participate in the National Flood Insurance Program, which means a community uh, is going to make, make it possible for residents to purchase flood insurance. They have to adopt the flood map, but they also have to adopt building codes and zoning ordinances that meet minimum standards established by FEMA. FEMA has not updated its minimum standards since Jimmy Carter was president in the mid-1970s. So, you know, we're not exactly moving the ball towards a more climate resilient future with our codes and standards when the federal agency who's supposed to be supposed to be advancing that conversation is still stuck in the 1970s we need we need standards and codes and flood maps that are prepared for the 21st century that we're living in and and so that raises the question is like why aren't they doing that you know it's like when um insurance companies should be demanding that they do it if they're paying out billions of dollars in losses every year you would think there'd be a lot of entities that would be really in favor of that but the one that's probably the least in favor of it might be the building industry because they're also the rebuilding industry. It seems kind of counterintuitive that they're the ones that fix the problems that they helped create. Yeah, that's often the case. In fact, the National Home Builders Association filed comments with FEMA uh, basically basically opposing or having expressing reservations about telling people the truth about their flood risks, that maybe that was a bad idea. I, I don't know why they think that's a bad idea, but we could probably make some educated guesses in that regard. Um, but but yeah, those those are the types of, of entities who are kind of, they, they seem to have a vested interest in keeping the public in the dark about the risks that they face in their very, in, in the home that they are considering purchasing. And that, that's got to change and that is changing. Um, so, so we're happy to see the progress that's being made in certain states, but we really this is a national this is a national problem. If you look at the flooding that just hit Vermont uh, in the last couple of weeks, you know that that's a state that also has no requirements to disclose past flood damages or flood risks. So when Hurricane Irene caused widespread damage in New York in 2011, Nobody that's bought a home or rented a home in Vermont since then was told anything about the damage that might have been done to their home. Uh, and now they're probably a little surprised to find out that their home, they may, many people in Vermont may, may be finding out um, or will be finding out that 
that the home that flooded in the last couple of weeks flooded previously in Hurricane Irene, but the lack of disclosure requirements never never told them that. No, and tragically, uh, insurance doesn't usually cover if your house floods. Correct. And people who don't live in a flood area can get flood insurance very inexpensively, which a lot of people from Harvey in Houston, their lives could be on a totally different path right now if they had spent three or four hundred bucks on flood insurance that nobody told them they needed. Very true. Very true. Yeah, it's very sad. Now, I read one of your op eds about uh, as floodwaters rise, outdated standards make the nation unsafe. This seems to be a lot of what we're uh, talking about right now. And you know, which all all the more reason for people to ask more questions. I mean, what can we do about the fact that things are getting worse and we feel like we're just standing there and the water's rising around us? Well, I will say uh, FEMA uh, knows the problem uh, that it has with its standards and is working to address it. So in 2021, the um, Association of State Floodplain Manage- Managers joined NRDC in what's known as a petition for rulemaking, uh, which is basically we laid out to FEMA uh, all of the the reasons why they had a legal obligation to update these standards that had not been reviewed since the 1970s. Um, And FEMA, FEMA to its credit, uh, concurred with our with our petition and is making uh, headway now in developing new standards and hopefully knock on wood we're going to see new regulations proposed sometime in the next 12 months now you said they did the first step they asked the public for input um which okay that's good but now that they have the input let's have the plan i mean i i would be you know if, if my house flooded and i knew somebody had the secret sauce to maybe save me that would be infuriating well, yeah, it is. Uh, it goes. The wheels of government sometimes turn much more slowly than we would like them to. Um, I mean, on the one hand, you know, FEMA FEMA could have simply said, "Well, you're right. We haven't updated these in fifteen year, fifty years. Guess it's time to do that." Since since the statute's very clear on that uh, that obligation. Um, you know, the question I think before the agency now is what changes are we going to make? How far are we going to go? And um, we await we await that answer. Uh, and every day that goes by and every flood that occurs, um, that answer becomes more and more pressing and more and more relevant. Yeah, but it seems frustrating. It's like, they, OK, you don't have to cure cancer. How about just coming up with ways to maybe help along the way here? And if there are certain things they could just implement, even if they were dripping it out at us, it would be better than doing nothing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. Um, but at least they are they are doing something, and that's that's a step in the right direction. And that will also help provide a, a little bit of a bulwark, hopefully, against efforts to actually either freeze business uh, freeze building codes. Uh, or even erode building code protections. Uh, we're, we're seeing efforts in in some states. North Carolina comes to mind, where state legislatures are actually passing bills to freeze building code improvements and plumbing codes and electrical efficiency codes um, at the behest of 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 developers, essentially. And you know, it's it's really a shame that we're doing that. 
because um, it's just going to lead to homes that are less safe than they could be, less efficient, which means the cost of owning that home is going to be even higher, you know, in the form of higher utility bills, higher water bills, higher risks to uh, flood hazards, and higher insurance costs. Yeah, as a Floridian, and I've experienced the problems getting homeowners insurance, and then they jack up your rates, and then you have to find a new company and all the companies that are leaving. I mean, I want something done, and I don't care who does it. Show me a hero. Somebody step up, and let's uh, let's help people. But that's why I think things like I do, and I, I, I hope what you guys do, if we can inform the public and get people to demand more, I think that's really the way it has to almost start from the bottom up. Because if we say, look, I'm tired of you dumping all this crap on me. I'm not going to reward builders anymore for building a, a substandard house. I'm not going to move into a neighborhood that's likely to flood. I think that's the way we can maybe uh, affect some change from our end. Absolutely. And that is a powerful force for change uh, at city councils, county boards, uh, and even state legislatures across the country. You know, there, there's a growing number of people whose lives have been turned upside down or disrupted because of because of disasters and uh, and there's a that number of people is growing alarmingly fast and they are starting to call for these types of changes there's a, there's a wonderful group we work very closely with called the Anthropocene Alliance which is a network of disaster survivors from all over the country most of them have been affected by floods but a growing number of their membership is focused on wildfires out west and they are they are becoming a much more vocal and potent force uh, in their local in their local towns and in state capitals and even um, uh, even with federal agencies trying to advance these types of uh, protections that we need because because ultimately these policy shortfalls that groups like NRDC are trying to correct they result in real life impacts to real people and real people's homes. So remedying these things is critically important. Otherwise, we are destined to remain behind the curve of climate change and simply reacting to each and every disaster as it occurs. Now, another one of your op-eds to me is something we we touched on a little bit in my last film, but as climate risk, uh, risks worsen, U.S. flood buyouts fail to meet the need. You know, that's we have such freedoms in this country of we can do what we want. We can go where we want. People can't tell us what to do. So buyouts versus the government saying you can't live there anymore. That's too dangerous. What is the what is the dance there? Buyouts are a tool that are employed uh, to help people move out of areas that are unsafe and in many cases move towards higher ground. So. What happens typically is, is a person lives in a home that's probably flooded repeatedly. And at, at some point, they and, and possibly their neighbors are just sick of it. And they find out that there's federal funding available sometimes that can enable the purchase of their home and allow them to relocate. So it's sad, but often these efforts are initiated because homeowners are just fed up and they have to advocate for themselves to make these things happen. Um, and, and what, what usually happens is they are, 
they are basically embarking on a journey that can last three to five years or, or longer before that buyout comes to fruition. And that's, that's a really, frankly, that's kind of a cruel way to provide that type of assistance. Um, what typically happens is a flood disaster occurs, um, up to a year can pass before a local community even offers the option of a buyout. You know, at that point, it's often too late. You know, a person may have already rebuilt and decided I'm not interested anymore. If somebody does raise their hand and say, yes, I, I have to get me, I have to get myself and my family out of this situation. Um, so they, they express interest. Little do they know that it's going to be a long time before this ever plays out. We need to speed that up since, since 1993 which was a year of massive flooding in the Midwest. It was a, a 500 year flood on the Mississippi River, uh, which, and it was the first disaster where FEMA employed buyouts in a big way. They purchased thousands of homes, primarily in Missouri and Illinois and other um, upper Mississippi River Basin states. Since 1993, we have bought out approximately 45,000 homes. So at that pace, over the next 90 years, which takes us just past the end of this century, you know, we will purchase a, about 135,000 homes. When you compare that number to the four to five million people whose homes will be inundated at high tide just by three feet of sea level rise, or the 14 million people who, whose homes will be inundated by six feet of sea level rise, that's a huge gap. You know, the, the, the way we're delivering that assistance today is completely inadequate to respond to the challenges that we are looking at right now. And that doesn't even take into account homes, the millions more homes at risk from storm surge uh, due to hurricanes or even inland flooding or any of the other hazards that we already see displacing people in other parts of the country, whether it's wildfire, the extreme heat that's broiling huge swaths of the United States this week and last week, or water scarcity, which is also starting to lead to people being displaced from their homes in the southwestern U.S. You know, when uh, I was making my film, The Last House Standing, we found Hank Ovink, um, and he's from yeah. the Netherlands. We saw him on 60 Minutes. And over there, the government made people move from dangerous areas. But that's not that easy to do in this country because it's not a federal decision, is it? Yeah, that's generally correct. Land use decisions uh, are the jurisdiction of local governments and state governments. So the federal government, uh, with some notable exceptions, doesn't have a lot of control over what you what you can and can't do on a particular parcel of land. Um, there may be permitting requirements that you have to meet, but but they don't, they don't generally have the ability to say, thou shalt not build there, thou shalt build over here. Um, but that's where we need to get to. And that's one of the, that's one of the things that, that we want to see as an outcome through the National Flood Insurance Program regulations we talked about earlier, where higher standards are going to start to make it a little clearer that there are certain areas that are just too risky to build in. And if you're gonna build in them, you're gonna to have to meet such a high standard that that maybe the cost gets you gets you to rethink that decision. Um, and and we are also seeing a, a problem with 
We're seeing this already play out. You're in Florida where this is a, an acute problem where insurance companies now are just starting to pull out of states because they they can't they can't make money insuring properties that they are destined to pay out damage claims on. So, you know, we're seeing this happen in Florida, we're seeing this happen in Louisiana, and we're seeing this happen in California. I'm not sure what the insurance industry's strategy here is. Are they all just kind of, is, is the business just going to keep contracting until only Wisconsin and Minnesota are the only insurable states 100 years from now? Uh, I don't think that's a viable business strategy. So my hope is that we're going to start seeing insurance companies get much more involved in these local proceedings on establishing stronger building codes, stronger zoning ordinances, as well as just weighing in on local land use decisions. So like when building permits are issued, you know, a, a, a city council should be acutely aware of the fact that like you can you can allow that building to go up, but nobody's going to insure it. So therefore, what you're just going to be stuck with a vacant building over there at some point. Um, these are all things that that we need to be revisiting and rethinking very quickly. And the good news is that that is starting to happen uh, at, at various levels of government. And and hopefully we're, we'll be making better decisions soon enough. Well, I applaud the people that keep an eye on this kind of stuff so things don't happen. I read an article recently, um, I think it was Captiva Island. Um, where they wanted to rebuild this one resort, but make it a lot bigger than it was previously. And they were trying to sneak it through the system. And so people go, okay, well, that's good. The, you know, more tax money and there'll be more people coming to enjoy this. But then it's like, there's one road out of there in an emergency. People couldn't get out safely last time if they didn't leave early. And now you want to put a whole bunch more people out there. It's like, we really have to watch everything that goes on on a local level because it's not always in everybody's best interest. It's the people that are down there maybe looking out after their own interests. Yeah, and it's a, it's a problem that local communities have. Um, you know, developers, deep-pocketed developers are often very quick to, to sue if they get a building permit or a zoning variance denied. And, you know, a, a city or a town is often very risk averse when it comes to litigation because it can be caught even if you're going to win even if you are on strong even if you're on on good legal ground um it still costs money and it still costs time to enter into litigation if you're sued so sadly too many communities i think just say let's just give them the permit and avoid avoid the hassle which just which just empowers poor decision making all around it sets bad precedents and it sets it sets us up for failure in the future. And we're just going to spend more money correcting the problem later than we would have spent avoiding the problem in the first place. Yeah, I think when we build in dangerous areas and what's interesting is the people that take the risk to be in the most dangerous areas are really affecting everybody else's insurance rates when there's damage. It's like we've been lucky here in Tampa. We haven't had a bullseye. But we're still paying for it. Now, when we have ours, it's going to be bad. Ian would have wiped us out last year. I think we just got so incredibly lucky. But, um, you know, that's something to think about is, you know, it, it could all go away so quickly. I think a lot of us take it for granted. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, um, you know, the, the, the future, the, the future 
is a lot riskier than it used to be. And we just have to take that into account for the decisions we make and, and um, whether that's at the individual level or we're talking about what, whether that's the level of the individual or that goes all the way up to the president and Congress too. Yeah, the next few months are going to be scary here in Florida. The water in the Gulf right now is in the mid to upper 90s in some places. It's like bath water. Yeah, uh, that's, that is really scary, especially when you're talking about uh, hurricanes. That, that is the engine for intensifying hurricanes. And, and we've, seen, we've seen these rapidly intensifying storms um, the last few years. Hur- Hurricane Michael was like that. Hurricane Ian was like that. So, you know, if these things, um, yeah, August, September, and October, I, I'm really hoping for a, a boring end to hurricane season. But as you say, the water temperatures are pointing to a different result. Yeah, there was a buoy down in the Keys that sub- registered a temperature of close to 100. I yeah. mean, that's warmer than some people heat their hot tubs. I know. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a whole new ball game out there. And even if it's not a hurricane that that affects, I was reading that the coral reefs of Florida are all in danger. I mean, there's other, the things that, you know, we're talking about homeowners here, but there's so many other environmental risks that we didn't even touch on that uh, you really have to think of it all, don't you? Yeah, it's, you know, climate change is affecting everything. It's not just flooding. It's not just heat. Um, It's what's happening to the oceans. It's what's happening to our communities. It's what's happening to other natural systems out there. So it's, it's just becoming, with each passing day, it becomes more and more clear that we have to both uh, eliminate as quickly as possible the root causes of climate change, you know, our, our own emissions uh, of carbon dioxide and other forms of greenhouse gases. And at the same time, we have to dramatically ramp up our efforts to adapt to those unavoidable consequences and we have to learn to make far better decisions that that look much further into the future than we're used to. All right. As we wrap this up, um, since you guys, I feel good that you guys are working on keeping stuff or trying to make things better from from your end. What should homeowners think about on our end? What can we be more conscious of as we make those home buying decisions or decisions where to live? I think we covered a lot of it at the top of the episode, George, but it's always worth recapping, you know, when, when you're looking at purchasing a new home or renting a new home, especially in a state like Florida that doesn't require a seller or a landlord to disclose past flood damages, ask lots of questions um, and also consult a lot of different sources of information. Um, don't be afraid to go knock on the door of your potential future neighbor and ask them about uh, what flooding problems have occurred in that neighborhood. Uh, they are very likely to to volunteer that information if they know that that you're um, you know potentially going to be affected by it if if you buy that home. Also, you can talk with um, you can talk with local officials. Maybe maybe get to know your local emergency manager who might be able to also shed some light on those. And consult FEMA flood maps. You know, for all the problems that we pointed out with FEMA flood maps, the areas that they identify as high risk are almost certainly high risk. Um, the error is in is is just outside of that envelope. Uh, areas that probably are high risk, but aren't 
mapped that way currently. So it's still worthwhile to look at the FEMA's flood maps, but just keep in mind that they may actually underpredict uh, the, the true risk of flooding today and far farther into the future as well. Yeah, and I, I think the ultimate takeaway there is don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, don't be afraid to be the the pesky person asking too many questions because that knowledge could be the difference between losing everything or keeping what your Absolutely. most valuable investment is. The other the other question to get some answers to well before you decide make your final decision to buy or rent a home is find out what the cost of a homeowner's policy is or a renter's policy and also a flood insurance policy. Um, if the cost of the flood insurance policy is too high, take that information into mind. The reason it's high, the, the reason the price might be high is because the risk is high. So don't decide, I just won't buy flood insurance. You, know, you might wanna revisit whether that's the location you wanna live in. Yeah, and I think it helps. Don't just go by what posts people are putting on social media where they say, yeah, I got my policy. Actually call yourself because you know we experienced this with my son who turned 16 with, with auto insurance. We had people posting they had great insurance. We can't find affordable insurance for him because we have to actually call and talk to them and fill out the paperwork. So you have to do the work on the front side if you want to hope to have any kind of help on the back side. Right. Always important to get a quote, uh, arm yourself with the best information so you can make the best possible decisions for you and your family. Absolutely. Well, all your contact information and, and information will be in the show notes. And uh, I appreciate your time, Rob. A lot of great information. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a lot. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and always a pleasure to talk about these issues. Thank you so much for joining me on today's Tell Us How to Make a Better podcast. As I mentioned, there's a lot of links in the show notes about what Rob was talking about today. And I certainly hope you will take advantage of those and get as much knowledge as you can before buying a house. And if you have a horror story or a great story you'd like to share about building or remodeling, use the contact form in there, reach out to me, and who knows, you might be featured on an upcoming episode of the podcast. Thanks again for listening today. See you next time.